Brighter Media Group original. Every decision related to this is very hard because it's kind of like, kind of like you're gambling on your life a little bit. Okay, I'm going to do this. What if that happens? If I do that, maybe that won't happen, but maybe it will. Welcome to Long Story Short, a podcast about living an intentional life. I'm David Paul. Every cancer story is different, unique to the person traveling that very hard road. But there is a common theme running through each story. In our last episode, we heard about Nikki Healy's three-month stay at an alternative cancer facility in Arizona as she fights stage four rectal cancer. Doctors wanted her to stay longer for more treatment. I was willing even to say, hey, do we want to do we want to stay and keep rolling? Um, but she said, I'm done. I, I need to go home. I need I, I can't endure anymore at this point. That's Steve Healy, Nikki's husband. As Nikki's story unfolds through season three of Long Story Short, you'll hear a theme repeated. This theme of hard decisions like do we stay or do we leave? We'll return to the Healy's in our next episode. This week, you're going to meet two people who have battled cancer, who also faced really hard decisions, even though their cancer was caught early. I was 28 years old, almost 29 at the time. This is Jolie Larkin. Her story happened more than 22 years ago. I found the uh, small lump myself and decided that I needed to go um, to the gynecologist and see what they thought. And... He said, well, don't point it out to me, see if I can find it. And he found it, and he recommended I go see a a breast surgeon. So Julie made the appointment, and while she was waiting to see the doctor, something happened. There was a a magazine, I picked it up, and I was just like flipping through it. And there was an article about a young uh, woman who had breast cancer, and she was a golf pro, and nobody took her seriously. And she talked to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, it's probably nothing. Just go ahead and let's not let it interfere with your golf career right now. And eventually she's like, but I still have this breast lump. And so much time had passed that it was really too late. And her sister was being interviewed for this article. Finally, Julie was called back to see the doctor. And the breast surgeon said, well, probably not cancer. Why don't we wait six weeks and come back and see me, and then we'll see what it looks like. But Julie had just read that magazine article. But I didn't feel comfortable with that because I had, I feel like God placed that that article right there when I needed it. And so Julie, being her own advocate, made an appointment with another doctor. He did a needle aspiration in his office in the breast lump and just sucked some little cells out and he sent it off to pathology. And um, in, you know, a few days he called me and he said, well, there are some abnormal cells here. So the doctor suggested Julie get a surgical biopsy. And he said it's probably not going to be anything serious at your age. You know, it's very rare. And so he scheduled me for the surgery, October 1st, 1999. And I was just like, well, you know, God, if it is something, let them figure out what it is. Which is exactly what happened. She was told the news right after the surgery. And then he came in and he told me, Julie, uh, it was breast cancer. He could tell by looking at it. He didn't have to send it. Uh, to a pathologist to look at, so I knew that day. The doctor recommended Julie get a mastectomy. I think that that, to me, at that time in my 20s, was more earth-shattering 
than the, hey, you've got breast cancer, the fact that I was going to have to have a mastectomy. So he said. Because of her discomfort with that recommendation, Julie sought a second opinion. Well, you don't have to have a mastectomy, so that was that was good news. You could have a lumpectomy. And so now Julie had a choice, mastectomy or lumpectomy. Was that a hard decision to make? Yes. Every decision related to this is very hard because it's kind of like, it's kind of like you're gambling on your life a little bit. Okay, I'm going to do this. What if that happens? If I do that, maybe that won't happen, but maybe it will. Julie chose the lumpectomy. Was that the end of her treatment? Well, <laughs> wasn't that easy. <laughs> um, first, I had that biopsy. My margins weren't clear, so that's why they had to go back and do the lumpectomy at the Kirkland Clinic. Um, the surgeon there did that. My margins came back not clear again. So here I've had two surgeries at 28 with unclear margins in the same area. When they do a lumpectomy, the doctor will remove the tumor and extra tissue surrounding it. That extra tissue is the margin, and they check to make sure there's no cancer. That would be a clear margin. In Julie's case, there was still cancer in that extra tissue. Her margins weren't clear, so Julie was faced with another decision. So I was offered another chance to clear the margins. I could have gone back a third time and we could have just said, okay, this is a lumpectomy and that's all you're gonna do. But at that point, I felt that I needed to do something a little more drastic. And I had some time to think about that. So I decided to go with the mastectomy with reconstruction. That still wasn't the end of the recommended treatment. So after that, I was set up for four rounds of chemotherapy. I took adriamycin cytoxin, and two weeks after I began the first treatment, I lost my hair. Chemo was the doctor's recommendation, but the decision to move forward with chemo, that was Julie's. I was down for doing it because I, you know, I wanted to, to live. Yeah, I wanted to live. Lumpectomy or mastectomy, chemo or no chemo, all decisions Julie had to make even though her cancer was caught early. It was stage one. After the chemo, Julie had regular follow-up appointments. Every year. Actually, I went back a little bit more often initially, and then I got to a point where I, I go every year until like 2019. That was my last that was my 20-year mark, and so my oncologist said goodbye. The radiologist came in, and he actually, I don't think this is normal, I don't think this usually happens, but he said it's invasive lobular carcinoma. This is my wife, Ava. I remember laying there and thinking, okay, this is one of those moments where your life just changes in a heartbeat. And I want to proceed in a way that brings glory to God. And I just don't know what that looks like. Ava is describing what happened on August 27, 2018. A few days earlier, she had discovered a lump and went in for a mammogram to have it checked out. Even though the radiologist gave it a name and said it was cancer, Ava still needed a biopsy, which took another week. That was followed by several more biopsies. One of the most difficult things of cancer is the waiting. Waiting for results of the tests, waiting for biopsies, waiting to get biopsies done, waiting for the radiologist to call, waiting for 
surgical dates, waiting, 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 waiting. And what makes the waiting even worse is it allows time for your mind to wander through all the different possibilities, especially when you can't sleep. I had a question in the middle of the night and made the mistake of going on to Google to look something up, which I had avoided. Um, I had I had avoided it except for the most basic questions like what is invasive lobular carcinoma. I, but other than that, I stayed away from the internet and people's stories. Um, but I did look it up and ended up within you know 20 minutes. I was sure that you know I had stage, you know, is it three? Is it? 3A, 3B, 3C, it might actually be stage four, you know, and you came into the bedroom and because you were getting ready for work. And I was like, David, I think I've got stage four cancer, you know, and, and I just had to shut that down. And I fear creeps in so easily and so quickly. Ava's cancer was eventually staged at 1A. As far as breast cancer goes, Mine is was easy. We found it early. It didn't cross any of the the bad lines. You know, it hadn't. Meta- it certainly had metastasized. It wasn't too large. It hadn't invaded the lymph nodes. It hadn't attached to the chest wall. It was contained. They were able to do a lumpectomy, take out my a couple lymph nodes to see if it had spread. It hadn't. Um, So then I needed radiation and up to five years of tamoxifen. But even easy cancer isn't easy. Being on the wrong side of the radiation door, we've talked about that. When you go in and you get radiation, you go in and you see all the danger signs because, oh, radiation, and the the door is a foot thick. And you go in and then everybody leaves because, oh my goodness, there's radiation in this room and you're still in there. And um, I remember laying on that table and just thinking, I never imagined myself in this position, you know, getting treated for getting radiation treatment for cancer. This happened every weekday through the holidays except Christmas and New Year's Day. One of the side effects is extreme fatigue, which Ava pushed through even doing some long runs. My wife is a runner. Quick side note, three weeks after breast cancer surgery, she ran a half marathon in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in the middle of a nor'easter with driving rain and 40-mile-an-hour wind gusts. (laughs) That's my wife. Finally, on January 4th, 2019, Ava got to ring the bell, signifying the end of her radiation. Keep the bell? They couldn't take this bell from me if they wanted to. It was determined that Ava would not need chemo, but instead was put on tamoxifen, a medicine that lowers the risk of the cancer returning. We both thought this would be the easiest part of her treatment. She started the tamoxifen in early spring 2019. By the end of summer, Ava was experiencing some noticeable cognitive decline. She was concerned, especially since her dad was battling dementia. Ava's issue continued to worsen through the fall. And so I think it was a couple weeks before Christmas, you and I were out shopping 
we were looking for gifts for our grandchildren and we were in the toy aisle. I couldn't figure out how to shop for toys. I knew what we needed, but it didn't make sense to me. And I couldn't figure out how to, how to function. I couldn't figure out what to do. I, I just couldn't do it. Ava did some research and discovered that one of the possible side effects of tamoxifen was its impact on mental clarity. That's not exactly how it's worded, but that's what Ava was experiencing. It was also a rare side effect. Armed with this knowledge, Ava made an appointment with her oncologist. Really had to convince him that um, I think it's the tamoxifen that's that's doing this. It was giving me what's kind of like chemo brain. And um, I ended, he ended up looking into it more and because this was, what, eight months into the first year of tamoxifen, and I asked if the brain would recover. Like, if I do this for the next four years, am I going to get my mental faculties back? And he said he didn't know. He said, I'm, I'm just not sure. I, I can't guarantee that that will happen. And so Ava was faced with a decision. Keep taking the tamoxifen, which now had a risk of permanent cognitive decline, or stop taking it, which increased the risk of the cancer returning. So with the tamoxifen, I had an 11% chance of the cancer returning. Without the tamoxifen, it's 17 or 18% chance of cancer returning. And it's not like if I do get cancer again, there's any announcement that comes with it. Like, and this is because you didn't take the tamoxifen, or this is, you know, this is not because you took the, I could still end up with cancer again, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't know why. So Ava decided to stop taking the tamoxifen. Gradually, her brain power returned to normal. Still, Ava is aware that her cancer journey is different from others. My cancer is easy. It's almost like survivor's guilt. We had a number of friends who had battles with cancer and who were losing their battles as I was, you know, doing this little skirmish off to the side. I've watched my wife's eternal perspective become even more finely tuned over these challenging past few years with her accident at the end of 2020, her mom dying of cancer in 2019, and starting with her own cancer in 2018. But isn't our desire to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, whether it's with well-behaved cancer or with poorly behaved cancer or, or no cancer at all? My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This was the answer God gave Paul about a thorn in the flesh that was causing Paul great suffering. This season, we are asking the question, is God's grace truly sufficient for life's most challenging thorns, like cancer? We are being joined briefly during each episode by Pastor Jason Van Bemmel, of Forest Hill Presbyterian Church in Maryland. This week, Pastor Jason helps us understand this whole thorn-in-the-flesh mystery. What exactly is it? One of the common beliefs is failing eyesight. And that it prevented him from being able to write his own letters and being able to do many of the things that, as a very well-educated, very well-read scholar, he would have prized. he, He loved reading, he loved writing, And those were the very things that he could not do because of his failing eyesight. 
And we know this because he increasingly started to use assistants to help him write his letters. So many of his letters are not just from him, but they're from him and Timothy and Silas or other co-authors of the letters. And then he would sign his letters and, and he makes reference a couple of places, says, this is my uh, signature. See with what large letters I write. And he's not writing with large letters because he's John Hancock trying to make a statement to the world. He's writing with large letters because he has poor eyesight. Does Pastor Jason believe this is Paul's thorn in the flesh, his bad eyes? I personally don't think it was his failing eyesight because I I don't think that the Apostle Paul would describe failing eyesight, which is a, a common infirmity in people as they get older. Um, I don't think he would describe that as a messenger from Satan sent to harass me. Um, it feels more spiritual and more uniquely personal and painful than that. If not eyesight, then what? The short answer is we don't really know. And that's actually a good thing because we can take Paul's thorn in the flesh and we can apply it to all of the things that weaken us, that trouble us, that harass us, which is actually where Paul goes with it. By the end of the passage, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly if of my weaknesses, just plural weaknesses. And in verse 10, he says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul goes from this very singular thorn in the flesh, which we don't know what it is, to basically everything that harasses him and makes him weak. He's going to be content in it, and he's actually going to boast in it because it drives him closer to Christ. But there's something else Paul does before he says he will boast of his weakness. Pastor Jason will explore that in our next episode. For 22 years, Jolie Larkin lived with cancer in the rearview mirror. I got busy, and I just didn't have that much time to focus on it. I think early on, I would talk about it to people in my life. I, it would come up. But I have friends now that they're surprised that I had had cancer because, I, I don't know, I've just kind of removed from it. Plus, her doctor had reassured her this was pretty much one and done. Because I asked my, my world-renowned surgeon at the Kirkland Clinic, I said, what about, I had had the mastectomy, I said, well, what about it coming back on the other side? And he said, oh, it's probably 95 to, I don't know if he said 95 to 98 percent chance, would not come back on the other breast. For more than 20 years, that doctor was right. And then, in the fall of 2021... Under my arm, I noticed something that was a little bit different than the other side all of a sudden. And I don't really know why I noticed it, but every time I would shave, I'd say, hmm, that feels a little bit different. Because she had an area of concern, that changed Jolie's annual mammogram to diagnostic. Because it was diagnostic, um, I was going to learn that day that um, there were some microcalcifications and that they needed to do a stereotactic biopsy. So that was the next thing. Jolie got the biopsy and then had to wait for the results. I got to tell you, that was the scariest time for all of it um, because I had to wait six days for the results. So I'm feeling like, is the bottom going to drop out? You've got horrible cancer and it's going to be over. So I had a really hard time. And then finally, I got the result 
She said it was invasive ductal carcinoma, my familiar friend, because that's exactly what I had last time. Once Julie had the results, she quickly made an appointment with a cancer surgeon. So everything was pretty much good news, even though it was cancer. They thought, well, it's stage one. The surgeon also suggested a mastectomy. I would encourage anyone, go get two or three other opinions at different groups. And that's exactly what Julie did. My second opinion said exactly the same things to me regarding lumpectomy, mastectomy, same results. But she sent them in a different way. She, she, she wrote everything out on this piece of paper and she wrote all the different surgeries you could have on the bottom. And then on the top of the paper, she wrote all of the like chemotherapy, radiation, the estrogen blockers and, and the different drugs you could take. And she pointed and she said, this down here below the line, that's the surgery. She said, this is not going to save your life, Julie. She said, this stuff up here, which are all the, the treatments, that's going to save your life. And I heard it. Julie was now faced with another decision. It just made me completely turn around. And, and so I thought, OK, I'm going to try to do the lumpectomy. Julie had a successful lumpectomy the day before Thanksgiving. But cancer a second time, 22 years after the first? I look at it like a wake-up call. I mean, it could have come at a better time, but a better time might have been too late. So it came at the right time um, to kind of get my life in order, all the different areas to target uh, good health um, for really everything, not just cancer. I mean, the main focus is I've got to I've got to find out uh, ways that I can reduce the risk of it happening again, because that is exactly what hit me between the eyes um, with this second diagnosis. It was not a fluke that I had cancer the first time. I, I kind of attributed it to, oh, a fluke. It's just like crazy thing. Only one in 4,000 women got cancer in their 20s when I got cancer, one in 4,000. And I thought, oh, what a fluke, you know. So I, I thought, okay, I've got it. It's one and done. Um, but I look at it as a wake-up call to live as healthy as I possibly can. And yes, Julie is experiencing the sufficiency of God's grace through all of this. Um, I also know that I'm still in God's grip. God, you know, there were multiple things that I we could spend another hour talking about how God uh, just delivered me through every aspect of it. You know, people praying for me um, and just uh, helping me out in all kinds of ways. When Julie and I talked, she was still facing further treatment. Her doctor recommended radiation, which meant another hard decision. I am not at peace with it yet um, because, you know, I had chemotherapy before, and so my body's taken a hit already. So I'm just kind of trying to get to be at peace with it. I'm not concerned about the treatment itself. I think that'll be, you know, not, not as big a deal as, as chemo in that moment, but I'm worried about the, the side effects, you know, of everything because of everything I've been through. Since Julie and I talked for this podcast, she has made the decision not to pursue radiation, which brings us back to what Julie said earlier and the need for God's grace in that moment of deciding. Every decision related to this is very hard because it's kind of like, it's kind of like you're gambling on your life a little bit. Preview of our next episode is moments away. 
Long Story Short is a production of Brighter Media Group. John Lawhon is the executive producer. Also on the podcast team, Todd Gaddy, Aaron Branham, Caroline Burke, and Laura Ahn. Season 3 of Long Story Short is looking hard at the sufficiency of God's grace when facing the hardest challenges of life, like cancer. Next time we return to the story of Nikki Healy, who is fighting stage 4 rectal cancer. Honestly, I, I don't think about that I have cancer all the time. I, re- I almost rarely think about it. Like, every once in a while, like when I get a scan diagnosis or when I get a scan report back, it almost is like getting re-diagnosed all over again. It's very strange because I'm like, I have tumors? <laughs> Wait, what? I have cancer? Um, because I don't feel the cancer, if that makes sense. Like, I don't have any side effects from having tumors in my lungs or liver. I don't feel anything. Episode 6, Spring 2021, when another scan jolts Nikki back to her cancer reality. Season 3 of Long Story Short has five episodes remaining. Follow or subscribe, depending on what your preferred podcast service calls it, and you won't have to remember to find the episode each Tuesday after it's released. Instead, it'll be there waiting for you. Thanks for listening. Let's connect again next week.